0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Sativa Segment. Um, I'm your host, Richard Chang. We are here um, with a guest today in the investment world. Uh, his name is um, Tibby Erdely. And also in the audience is my girlfriend watching me film this episode for the first time. Uh, I've actually never had a, had a guest in the audience, but here she is. Um, before I get started, I'd like to point out the fact that this episode is fueled by Cholson M&A Advisors. It's a uh, It's essentially an M&A sell-side business brokerage firm that's based here in Dallas, Texas. Um, The firm itself uh, assists sellers of businesses um, who are seeking buyers and also assistance in packaging up their company in an effort to sell. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, you can certainly go to LinkedIn and do a search for Cholson M&A. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Tibby, welcome to the episode.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah. Excited to be here.
0: Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited as well. I've been looking forward to this. Now, you just flew in this morning from Denver, Colorado.
1: That's right. It was a little bit cooler there today than here. So,
0: Oh, gosh. This whole week is going to be like over 100, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: So, in for a treat.
0: But you're from Texas.
1: Yeah. I was born and raised in uh, kind of northern San Antonio. Okay. the hill country.
0: And home of the Roadrunners, right? That's right. <laughs> beep, beep. Beep, beep. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they had a... Interesting basketball. Is it was it basketball or football that was pretty successful recently?
1: Uh, football was actually pretty successful last season, but it's a okay. fairly new team. So we got the football team my senior year, which okay. kind of is dating me a little bit now. But okay, yeah, the program's
0: been pretty good so far. It's really grown, huh? It has quite a bit, yeah. Okay, so um, you grew up in Texas. Mm-hmm. Did you? Uh, and you went to obviously college in Texas, mm-hmm. um, but you worked out of state.
1: Yeah, um, Yeah, graduated school and um, really had no intentions of leaving the great state of Texas. And first job took me to Salt Lake City, Utah. I was working with Goldman Sachs out in Salt Lake City. Um, Spent about 18 months there, which is about the minimum amount of time you have to spend with any team as an analyst. And very quickly uh, moved my way out to New York City and was with Goldman in New York for about another couple of years or so.
0: Okay. So tell me the most valuable thing that you learned at Goldman's both, you know, it doesn't matter the city.
1: Yeah. You know, I think one of the most valuable things I took away from the company was the value of mentorship and finding someone to really kind of cling to and someone that you can confide in and ask questions. Mm -hmm. And this was a gentleman who I'd say made it very far in his career. He was a partner at Goldman. Um, pretty young guy at the time, I guess he was probably in his mid forties. And so he had done quite a bit in a short amount of time. And, um, I asked him, you know, how, how'd you do it? And he said, don't take your foot off the gas. Because when you turn 30, 31, as you get older, you will see friends, colleagues start to take their foot off the gas. He goes, that's when you press down and go harder. He goes, and if you can keep your foot on the gas for longer, you'll make it further. So
0: well, That's a good lesson, yeah. right? Okay. So, I mean, it's, uh, he's obviously emphasizing hard work and, uh, and diligence and being persistent in what you want to do.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: but uh, as an analyst, what was that like working as an analyst at, at Goldman's?
1: Um, a lot of late nights, um, a lot of repetitive work. Um, it was a really valuable experience. I say that I picked up all the soft business skills that you might not get somewhere else, how to conduct yourself in a meeting, um, the value of doing, um, very diligent work, um, attention to detail was probably the one thing that was really drilled in at Goldman. I mean, you could have perfect work done, perfect analysis, and you're messing up the verbiage or, you know, punctuation and, you know, you're in for a late night and probably a little bit of a lashing, um, and you learn from that. So I would say really the attention to detail was something that really stuck with me from Goldman.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can relate. Uh, growing up in big law, um, a lot of late nights as well. And um, obviously, attention to detail is big as, as a lawyer, right? Um, so you, you grew up in the financial world, uh, went to Salt Lake City, subsequently to that, to New York City. Now, how long did you stay in New York?
1: Not long enough. Um, I think that my tenure there, it was fun. It was like a good age. I was like 26, 27 years old when I was there. Um, I could have stayed for longer, but I had an opportunity come my way that was a little bit too hard to resist, so I ended up taking it. Um, Towards the end of my tenure at Goldman, I was kind of looking for a new role. I was actually interviewing for roles within the company to maybe switch divisions or something like that, Um, and I actually had some competing offers. I had a competing offer from Goldman, one from Google, and then I had also been headhunted at Partners Group. Uh, Partners Group is a large Swiss private equity firm. I think they're managing about $140 billion or so today. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, Partners had a huge presence in New York, huge presence in San Fran. Um, but they were really looking to expand their footprint in North America, just given how much capital they were investing you know, on this side of the pond, if you will. And they landed on Denver, Colorado. Um, so I was actually one of the first employees to go out there to help build out the Denver office. Um, Before moving out to Denver, I actually got to spend a few months in Switzerland training um, with the private equity team directly there, um, and then moved out to Denver. And for me, having come from Salt Lake City to, you know, financial district, Manhattan, um, and having an opportunity to get into private equity, skipping business school, and then going back to the mountains just kind of seemed like a no-brainer to me. I I love the mountains. I miss Texas for all the right reasons. My family's here. But... um, you know, it's kind of hard to beat the weather and the outdoor activities that you can do out in Colorado. So it's been a, it was a fun move and, and, you know, I don't look back.
0: Right. I mean, uh, how can you go wrong with a menu of, uh, different outdoors activities in Denver? Right. Right. Um, so during this entire transition from, um, Goldman's and subsequently to partners group, did you ever play in the cannabis field? Or I I would imagine the answer is a quick no, but please (laughs) tell me, please correct me.
1: Uh, you know, I experienced cannabis at a young age, um, <laughs> and I continued to for some time after that, not you know like a heavy user or anything, but, um, you know, no, I, I hadn't ever really considered the cannabis industry as being an investable asset class. At Goldman, I was um, on a team that was focused on the emerging markets before making my way to the U.S. core equity team when I moved to New York. Um, Doing traditional fundamental bottom up analysis, building out Mm. mutual funds. And then at Partners Group, I mean, it was right down the fairway, traditional middle market buyouts, um, you know, very much like the Swiss, not trying to, you know, get too far out of either lane. And yeah, cannabis was never something that we had thought of. And I say we because I have two co founders. Um, But I will say, After living in Denver for, you know, call it close to four years, working for partners, um, cannabis became a very normal part of life. I mean, in downtown Denver, where I live, there's more cannabis dispensaries than there are Starbucks or McDonald's combined, Mm. right? Um, People aren't afraid to try the product. There's all sorts of form factors. I think that the stigma of cannabis in Denver, Colorado has largely gone away. Um, So it became a normal part of life that cannabis was just always around you. Um, but still hadn't really thought about investing in the space before.
0: Yeah. So I'll, I'll make a comment to, uh, what you just said about the stigma going away for cannabis in Denver. Um, I don't think that's, um, by any means the case here in Texas, um, in many capacities. Right. Um, but, Tell me about how you came, uh, how you decided to go into cannabis. I mean, obviously you were, you saw it around Colorado legalized adult use in, back in 2012, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was the first state to, to uh, pass adult use. Um, but obviously it's had um, 11 years to develop a mature market. At what point did you say, Hey, listen, this is, this is what we want to do. And how did you approach your partners about it?
1: So. It's, it's a great question, and um, frankly, it's a story that we tell quite a bit whenever we're talking to our LPs or mm-hmm. um, other folks that invest with us directly. Um, call it circa end of 2018. You know, my partners and I, Pete and Jordan, um, which actually people figure this out, KEY is actually an acronym for our last name. It's Carabas Erdely Euclis. It took us about three minutes to come up with the name of our company. Um we had always talked about doing something different, like maybe going and starting a traditional private equity fund or a real estate fund. Just, we felt that we had the experience already and loved everything that we learned at Partners Group. Could, wouldn't be here without Partners, without Goldman, um, but we were ready to branch out. And,
0: and were they at Partners with you?
1: They were at Partners with me and they, okay. they both, Jordan started about a year before Pete and I at Partners, but he was in the San Fran office, but we all moved out to Denver. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, I think we were within like the first 15 employees in the partner's office out there, mm-hmm. something like 250 now. They have a huge campus. Um, so I met those guys early on in my career or tenure at partners, got to know them, we were friends first, and then you know, ultimately talking about maybe branching off and getting into business together. And the one thing that always kind of was stopping us was that if we were to go out and try to raise capital... Why would somebody invest with us following a similar strategy as to what we were maybe doing at partners or a competitive firm? Mm -hmm. And we're all, you know, 29, 30 years old at the time. And so we were trying to think of emerging markets where we weren't going to be competing with our managers or our bosses to go out there and execute a strategy and raise money. Um, We had several quirky ideas, um, none that really stuck with, you know, all three of us. And then End of 2018, when the Farm Bill passed, we were like, oh, look, this cannabis thing's real. This must be a precursor to eventual legalization. Um, There was so much investor appetite, demand. It was all over the headlines. And given our proximity in Denver, we're like, wow, there must be some really cool deals that we can work on and see out here. So we started looking at opportunities. Um, very quickly learned that we were basically boxed out from investing in the asset class akin to most hedge funds, private equity firms. There's either vice clause restrictions that Mm -hmm. won't allow them to invest or simply put, because it's still federally illegal, it's not within their mandate or their ability to invest in the space. And so that kind of became the light bulb moment for us. We were like, okay, so on one side of the equation, all the institutional guys aren't stepping into the space. So there's not really a lot of folks like us. Um, but there's a ton of investor appetite, but not really a lot of great places to park your capital, except for maybe a few publicly traded companies that mm-hmm. at that point in time we thought were trading at you know crazy valuations. And I think that's proven to be true. Um, so that was, like I said, the light bulb. And we said, holy smokes, this cannabis thing. Mm-hmm. Like we can go out there, we can raise capital, we live in the perfect city to do it. It's, you know, you know I think Denver is kind of like the Silicon Valley of cannabis, right? Um, there's certainly more hubs today than there were you know five years ago when we started, but you know Denver's still kind of the heart and soul of cannabis at least from our perspective. Um, and so we said, all right, this is it. 2019 came, um, got our you know bonuses from the year before and pretty much mm-hmm. within 24 hours quit our jobs and started key investment partners. And that's uh, yeah that's kind of the history there.
0: Do you remember when the Tilray stock just shot up? Oh yeah, and then now, of course, it's worth nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so
1: I, I mean, I, I got you know my wealth went up very quickly, and yeah. it came back down very quickly. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I, ha- I have a bunch of uh, cannabis stock that's worth practically nothing. Yeah, uh, everything from Tilray to Aurora to everything else. Um, At this
1: point, I'd rather just buy call options, long dated on these things, right? and see what happens. So,
0: <laughs> so um, the farm bill was a turning point for you mm-hmm. guys. Um, it caught your attention. Yep. Um, but. Let's be honest. That was far. um, That was far down the line post uh, adult use legalization. Mm -hmm. So you essentially you had two avenues. You had the 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 hemp cannabinoid market, which covers industrial hemp. It covers a bunch of other stuff, right? And we'll even go and you know we'll even throw in cosmetics and everything else. And then you had this bustling adult use market in Denver. Did you and your partners ever have a discussion? Deciding, okay, this is a riskier route versus this. And how did you decide which route to take?
1: Yeah, it took us, um, it probably took us a solid six months of really studying the market before we really kind of honed in on what our fund one strategy would be. Um, And what we ended up, the path we ended up going down was where we thought we found better risk adjusted returns basically was down the ancillary space. So we weren't um, particularly enamored by hemp or the legalization of hemp or CBD. Like it's you know it's a market that I think has kind of gone up and down. It's been a roller coaster ride. Um, but what we did, where we did think we saw most of the value, was on the adult use cannabis market or on the medical cannabis market, mm-hmm. which frankly we just viewed as a Trojan horse to adult use. Eventually, um, at that point in time. THC stocks, publicly traded companies, and a lot of the private companies, they really had no trouble going out and raising capital and getting kind of whatever valuation they wanted. we It was
0: crazy valuations.
1: Crazy. And, yeah. you know, we were fundamental, you know, guys, we we grew up doing traditional investing and we just, we were always trying to triangulate these cannabis valuations with the valuations in traditional markets with, you know, analogs, right? Like, the alcohol industry, maybe tobacco, nutraceutical, mm-hmm. etc. And we just weren't able to really get comfortable during this period of figuring out what our subject matter expertise was going to be. And we ended up really, really honing in on the ancillary side of things, kind of the picks and shovels early on. And the reasons for that is, one, we thought valuations were much more reasonable. It was a lot easier for us also to triangulate valuations with traditional analogs, right? So, you know, in a similar vein to how cannabis related companies even today still have trouble accessing banking, deposits, insurance, et cetera. Many traditional enterprise level software tech companies won't service the industry. If they're trading on the NASDAQ or the NYSE, you could potentially, you know, risk getting delisted for servicing cannabis. And so it created this whole ecosystem over the years as cannabis had been legalized of these basically copycat enterprise software tech Mm -hmm. firms. Right. and, given our traditional background of investing, it was a lot easier for us to understand those business models, frankly, than going straight into agricultural cannabis, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was number one, is we felt we had more experience just looking at those types of business models. Mm-hmm. Um, and we liked the ability to go out there and again, uh, you know, compare the valuations to what we were seeing in traditional asset classes. Um, it also gave us a lot of visibility into who ultimately we believe will be the strategic acquirer of these businesses. You know, ADP might not service cannabis companies or paychecks who used to now doesn't service cannabis companies anymore. So, a company like Work that does, you know, HR and payroll solutions, we think would be a really nice, you know, horizontal acquisition target for those types of companies. So, it gave us visibility, one, into business models that we thought were easier to understand their existing business models, um, easier to understand the valuations or triangulate them, and then also potential. Um, strategic exits for these businesses. And then lastly, some um, specific cannabis dynamics is they're not touching the plant. So mm-hmm. you're not dealing with 280E. Um, so you can actually run a business without the handcuffs that every other cannabis company has to you know run their business by.
0: It's um, not a tier one company for banking purposes for the risk factor.
1: Right. And there's um, also interstate commerce isn't yeah. an issue. You could start a tech company and you could scale it into every single cannabis state. So our point of view was let's go the ancillary path for now. We understand this path, it's quite obvious. Um, And as we get more comfortable with the plant via the kind of asymmetrical information that we're getting from the ancillary side, perhaps we'll start to evolve into more plant touching businesses. But um, when all is said and done, we we raised and deployed the first vehicle, Um, about 70% of what we did in that vehicle was non-plant touching. The other 30% was plant-touching, and I would say most of that plant-touching exposure came towards the end of our investment period. A couple reasons. Valuations were coming back down to earth by the end of our investment period Mm -hmm. um, in that vehicle. And um, just frankly, our understanding of, of the industry and the space was much greater than it was when we first got involved.
0: Yeah. It sounds like your identity kind of morphed over time, right? You start Definitely. off in this ancillary space instead of focusing on the traditional supply chain, upstream, downstream, and midstream of cultivation, processing, manufacturing. You focus on this um, niche ancillary space that kind of set the tone of your identity. I think so. But, but over time, you became more knowledgeable in the industry, and you said, oh, "Okay, well, maybe we should dabble into this other in, um, this, this this other space." Um, was that transition um, a challenge, or were you guys scared? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say scared. i may, probably excited. Okay. Um,
1: you know, there was probably two key things that ultimately led to the transition, right? Um, first and foremost, nothing in the world is going to take the place of experience, right? We had, you know, three, four years of experience investing in tangential cannabis businesses, which helped us really get more comfortable with the plant itself. And simultaneously, the capital markets became much more expensive for cannabis companies, Mm -hmm. which as an investor can put you in a fortuitous position. Um, and the access to to capital became much more difficult for these companies. So valuations were coming down. Mm -hmm. So we said, not only do we know more today, we're actually seeing these companies trade at much more reasonable valuations. And that was really kind of the, you know, catalyst for us, if you will, to start to get more involved with the plant. Um,
0: yeah. Okay. Um, so you obviously have these different funds, and just for for the audience's uh, understanding of key investment partners, you're you're essentially a VC fund. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I
1: call this a growth equity fund, but VC, okay. whatever, right?
0: Right. I mean, it's a it's that it's it's that it's an initial seed money that kind of gets mm-hmm. that gets a company going, and you're looking for high returns. Clearly. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, we, let's we, let's we, just throw, we get in
1: the weeds. We get high returns. Yeah, you That's get high it.
0: returns. Yeah. Let's just throw that out there and be very honest with yeah. what you're looking for. <laughs> um, but. So here's I guess here, here's here's my question is that you have this these funds and you capital raise. Now you're let's let's talk about the the companies that's part under fund one, which you said is closed now, right? That's right. Okay. So you essentially you aggregate capital and I'm trying to talk in a way that most of my audience will understand. Sure. And you create this fund. And this fund, you have to deploy capital. You take this capital, you deploy it, and as you said, you start off in the ancillary space. Um Tell us about some of the the companies specifically, the names of the companies, or maybe even tell us a little bit about those companies that's under fund one, which is closed. And then let's transition to fund two.
1: Sure. So I think important to kind of paint the full picture of how we think about investing. So nomenclature and VC is really all over the place. Um, People talk about their series A1, A2, A3, and it can Mm -hmm. go on forever, blah, blah, blah. Just to generalize it, we're typically going to be more like a Series B, Series C investor. Yeah. So, yeah. we're not really the folks to give you your seed capital. We want to see, you know, at least a couple of years of a track record. Sure. so We can actually go out there and analyze management's performance. Um, frankly, we love to meet seed companies and track them for like a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then it's like, okay, once you're of certain size, then let's talk.
0: Would you say over ten million?
1: Um over ten million in revenue is yep. probably where we start to get more interested. Yep, um for sure. that's that's definitely right. We also, I think really pride ourselves and this goes back to our partners group's days. Partners group was really known for um, finding proprietary deals, structuring their own deals, leading their investments, et cetera. Partners was a lead buyout shop. so we're certainly not lead buyouts. We're you know minority investors or significant stakes. but we do like to lead and structure a lot of our transactions. so, I sit on the board of, I think, five companies right now. Yeah, I noticed that, yeah. Um, And, you know, I think that's very near and dear to us is, especially today where capital is not flowing as freely, um, it's even easier to go out there and lead these transactions. There's just not as much competition. And we like that because we like having that board representation. We want to work with the management teams that Mm -hmm. we invest with. Um, We're certainly not the guys to take the keys and run a business, but we want to help and bring in our network of advisors to help ensure that the investments are, are successful. Um, with that being said, happy to talk about a couple companies in, in fund one um, to bring it full circle to your question. So our very first investment um, was in a company called BDS Analytics, or co- commonly known as BDSA. Mm-hmm. Um, just for anyone listening in, if you're you know opening up a Wall Street Journal or you're seeing an article in the cannabis industry and there's cannabis statistics in there there's a very high likelihood that it's coming from BDS analytics. So what these guys do is they're a data analytics company, very similar to call it like an IRI or a Nielsen. Um, They're plugged into virtually all the point of sale systems within cannabis. They take this data, they collect it, they aggregate it, they synthesize it and they create actionable reports with it. Right. So retailers are using this information for inventory purposes. Um, CPG companies or branded products are using it for go-to-market strategy Um, virtually every MSO multi-state operator out there is a client of BDSA. Eventually, we think that this data is going to get further and further into traditional industries like, you know, traditional CPG, like a PepsiCo or nutraceutical companies, alcohol companies, um, confidentially we are seeing those types of companies come after our data today, which we think is a really um, great precursor to these folks seeing the writing Mm -hmm. on the wall that cannabis is ultimately going to affect their top and bottom lines. Um, we chair the board of BDS Analytics. Um, really fantastic company to be a part of. Just frankly, we receive a lot of asymmetrical information from from that business as well, having access to that type of data. Okay, um, yeah.
0: And so, um, as far as I mean, it sounds like a service um, oriented uh, company. Yep, um, h- how do you how do you charge for your services on those?
1: So it's actually um, the business model is this is was kind of key to our underwriting and something mm-hmm. that we really liked about the company is. As the industry grows, the amount of data grows and it becomes more Mm. valuable. And the more valuable the data is, the more you can charge. Every time a new state comes online, the package that we're able to go out there and sell to one of these multi-state operators grows and just becomes more and more expensive. So we are growing in line with the cannabis industry, which is frankly Mm. core to our thesis, investing in the ancillary space to begin with. We said... You know, if we're seeing, you know, a 20 to 30 percent Kager right, year over year growth of legal cannabis sales, let's invest in companies that are at a minimum trying to capture that growth rate themselves, if, if not grow faster. And in BDS analytics, I think we're seeing that type of growth and we're seeing it happen organically through the legalization state by state or from a state market transitioning from medical to recreational as the TAM expands the data expands as well.
0: Do you hear that Minnesota just passed adult use?
1: I did. That's very exciting.
0: Being the 23rd state. So in, in we're, a, said, we're
1: almost there. We're almost halfway
0: there. Almost halfway. Right. And they say uh, over a third of Americans today live in an adult use state. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's, like a new state like Minnesota, like that, how, what does that mean for BDSA?
1: So it just gives more opportunity for, you know, as think about as the infrastructure is built out, right? And Minnesota could be a specific example, but it really, this example spans across the U.S., right? Like we're talking about an industry here that's different than most emerging market asset classes, right? Like no doubt the blockchain is going to be huge. It already is in so many ways or artificial intelligence. But what's, you know, what's like a floor for that? Like how big could the industry be? Not sure cannabis. There's an embedded consumer, right? There's this huge black market across the United States. I don't know exactly what it is in Minnesota, so I'm going to give Mm -hmm. you a a U.S. example. But Mm -hmm. you know, there's estimates that are some are crazy, as high as like 150 billion. You know, we see call it like 80 80 million or 80 billion black market somewhere in between there. So let's call it 100. The legal cannabis industry today is about 30 billion. We know that this industry can grow into at least three x the size with that embedded demand. As I think about BDSA, how do you grow into that embedded demand? How do you take that black market and evolve it into the legal market? Mm -hmm. There's a few things that have to happen. Number one is infrastructure needs to be built out. Licenses need to be handed out. Cultivation needs to be built out, manufacturing, retail. Once you have all of that and you can actually start to compete with black market prices or you have new consumers that previously would have never texted a drug dealer to go buy you know, cannabis Mm -hmm. entering the market, you start to see the total adjustable market of the legal cannabis industry grow quite significantly. So for a company like BDSA or a state like Minnesota, as more licenses are handed out, as more retail shops are opened up, that is more opportunities for a company like BDSA to go plug in their software, basically, collect, aggregate that data and create, you know, a better sample and a better population of data that they can then go sell to uh, their end users.
0: Yeah, that's why I asked is that I would imagine as um, states like Minnesota when they open up this new additional market, it's just more data for you, right? And so as you said, the more data you collect, the more valuable it gets. Exactly. Um, so is there in your experience, has there been a difference between tackling the adult use market versus the medical market? Because I would imagine with the medical market, historically, depending on the state you're in you have to have a qualifying condition to even be eligible for it, right? So there's a cap or there's somewhat of a limited uh, amount of individuals or beneficiaries that can be part of that. Whereas the adult use market, it's more of a retail oriented market. So you have a, a broader base of consumers and you have a limited base of consumers on the medical side. However, they 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 serve two different purposes and you're dealing with two different set, uh, sets of demographics. Yep. And so has, has that impacted how you guys approach your, your investments or, um, any considerations you would have? It, it,
1: de- it definitely has. Um, you know, no doubt. Are we excited about the potential for adult use recreational cannabis in the United States? Um, And look, we do have investments in very mature adult markets like Colorado. Um, We were investors in LiveWell. LiveWell is now acquired by Pharmacan. We're still a part of that transaction Um, via the ancillary side. BDSA is headquartered in Boulder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we like mature markets because it gives us visibility into competition and actually folks who can really run a business in a competitive market environment. And if they're achieving, you know, great margin profiles there, then Um, that's exciting for us with regards to how we think about the long-term of cannabis. But as we think about fund two and our deployment into the plant, you, you actually said it, um, here, our focus is a little bit more of a retail strategy or CPG. We like branded products, um, five years ago, I would have never said that about CPG. Uh, there are just so many different brands out there because there's no interstate commerce. You don't know how brand loyalty is going to translate across state lines. Fast forward to today there's brands that also have a multi-state presence. We think ultimately brands and retail are going to be big winners in the cannabis industry. Um, and within medical to recreational, we actually really like States where we can go establish a footprint prior to adult use, um, legalization, Texas tech. I mean, we, we, uh, you know, we've got a a couple, you know, dice rolls on these applications for this, uh, conditional medical license that, that you can get right now or provisional. But, um, you know, states like Ohio are really exciting to us, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the fifth or sixth most populous state in the United States. Um, once adult use legalizes there, your TAM's going to grow by like six or seven X. Um, states like Florida, again, right on the cusp. Um,
0: Florida is an interesting market. Florida interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, they they. They, they don't have adult use, but they have such a robust market with Truly being just the, the, the dominant yep. player there, like by, by far with, without any competition and there's a lot of interesting politics in, in Florida that kind of dictates that market and how um, how that works.
1: yeah, I think Florida, I think Truly, you know the information's out there, so some feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but they own about fifty percent of the market in
0: Oh more than that,
1: maybe more than that more than that right. Um, and Trulieve is in the process of basically trying to undercut everybody they in are. Florida right now, yeah. you know, bringing down the prices significantly, make it hard to compete. Um, but there are some very talented operators going into the space in Florida right now. Um, we're backing one of them um, as we speak right now. So we're investors in TRP, which is the real estate arm of basically the Cookies brand. So Cookies, the structure of the company is... Um, it's kind of wonky, you know, there's like the cookies apparel, there's the cookies IP that's like Mm -hmm. genetics. And then there's the real estate side. We're investors in the real estate side. And basically we have the exclusive rights to brand our dispensaries with the cookies or Dr. Green thumbs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, logo. These are folks that come out of traditional private equity, real estate, private equity. Um, they've got a really great track record of building out, you know, a great retail footprint on the corner of main and Maine, Um, and we actually just got one of the licenses in Florida that allows us to open up unlimited retail locations. So, um, it's tough. We're going to go out there and we're going to compete with true leave, but I think that we're also catering frankly, to a totally different consumer, um, in Florida, you know, cookies is, Thought of kind of top shelf, you know, very high tier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that True Leave is, is really considered the same. Uh, I know that they're cannabis. It's different. I yeah. mean,
0: you know, I always say, I mean, in, in Cookies is, a, is has a great team there. They're, they're actually a client of mine. Oh, great. Uh, and um, I always say, if you want the uh, McAllen 20, you know, the McAllen 25 of, of, uh, of cannabis, um, go to Cookies. Go to, go to Cookies, yeah. right? Burners Cookies, right? That's right. Um, let's transition real quick to, to your focus on fun too. Okay. Uh, how does your philosophy change from Fund One, Fund Two, Fund Two, and maybe talk about a little bit more depth about some some of the companies you're looking at in Fund Two? Cool.
1: So, um, you know, it's it's a tough environment out there. I think anybody who works in the industry is is probably going to say that I'm even sugarcoating it by just calling it tough. It is very very difficult cap markets environment. It's largely driven by the lack of progress that we've had on the regulatory front. Um, But with that being said, we are still seeing overall a very quickly emerging market in the United States in the cannabis industry. And it's largely being driven by um, states defying the federal government and choosing to legalize some form of cannabis themselves. And what we are seeing is that the people want marijuana and our Congress is far behind what the Mm -hmm. people are asking for. Um, And that certainly has affected the industry in a very material way these days. Um, just to kind of give everybody a little bit of a history lesson on why I think cannabis is so difficult today, um, you know, look, cannabis became an out-of-favor trade as soon as, actually, basically as soon as Biden took office. Biden had all these big plans for cannabis that never really came to fruition, very quiet on the topic. Why was he quiet while well, he was dealing with COVID and then the war in Ukraine and this and that? Um, Okay, understood. So cannabis securities are starting to do this. And then about a year into his presidency, you know, our good buddy Jay Powell starts raising rates faster than they've ever been raised before. Um, And these high risk trades became even more kind of off market, right? Um, and then just without any real movement on the regulatory front, getting so close, like towards the end of the last year, people thought that SAFE was going to pass with the NDAA, etc. It never happening. I think it's just... It's passed this, the House
0: like seven times.
1: Like seven times. And finally, we're talking about it on the Senate floor, but, it, yeah. you know...
0: They I, even tried rolling that into like a national defense. Something. Yeah, the NDAA. Yeah, NDAA. The yeah. And they even tried rolling some of the language in, uh, in a COVID-related bill. Yep. I don't know if you remember that, but yep. that was back in 2020 when they tried almost covertly s- squeezing that in, but it never got any traction.
1: Well, finally, they're actually talking about it where they should as a standalone bill, right? Yeah. Like, you know, trying to squeeze it into one of these packages as a bargaining chip, I don't think was ever the right path forward anyways. But anyways, the long story short, it's been a really tough go on the regulatory front. Um, and then on the cap markets front, you know, again, banking is still difficult. Mm -hmm. U.S. exchanges won't allow U.S. cannabis companies to uplist. Um, Many institutional investors where most capital would flow from to any emerging market are boxed out from investing in this space, no different than when we first started. Um, So all the excitement in 2018 and 2019 and even into 2020, it's just kind of abated because everybody's like, where's the regulation? Like, when are they going to make it easier to run a marijuana company? And so what that's done is it's made the access to capital much more difficult for companies. The cost of capital everywhere is higher today, mm-hmm. uh, but the cost of capital for a cannabis business, which doesn't have access to all the traditional pockets, is that much higher. Right? Then, you
0: hear, then you talk about 280E, right? Right. And that you have to be that much more profitable in order to be profitable because you can only take deductions off of COGS. Exactly.
1: So. I mean, we see effective tax rates like 70% for some retail yep. cannabis locations. So it's... Uh, It's crazy, it's really tough to operate a business. Now, that's where our narrative comes in. We're one of the few pockets of capital out there that are willing to work with cannabis companies because cannabis companies don't have access to many different pockets of capital. Look, we're not sharky investors, but we can go out there and dictate much better terms than you can by investing in a traditional asset class. So we go out there, so our whole strategy today is one, The ancillary thesis we think is still very much alive. However, over the last few years, I think that we've seen some players really start to pull away from the pack. And we've seen some companies start to struggle more. Um, Our whole focus is let's work with, you know, the top one or two competitors in any kind of segment. Um, And then two, we have basically widened the funnel to start to look at many more plant touching opportunities because valuations are about as cheap as they've ever been. but even more important than I think the value, the entry price is, we're getting much better deal terms with more downside protection. Well, than you we have to, have given yeah. the
0: cost of capital, right? Yep. I mean, everybody wants it, and you guys have it, or your competitors have it, and um, so I would imagine you're getting pretty good deals. Um, you mentioned going in on uh, with your working with your competitors. Do you ever go into like a joint investment opportunity oh, yeah. with your competitors? And so have have you, tell me about some of the challenges with that, if any.
1: Um, You know, it's actually been super complimentary, right? Like there's not really a single cannabis fund out there that can fill out an entire, call it large round by themselves, right? Like, you know, our check sizes today, like we're looking to deploy anywhere from call it four to six million per deal. But we like to go in with like one to two million to start and build our positions over time, Right so we we don't you know we don't shoot our whole clip all at once so if we're going to go invest in a 10 or a 20 million dollar round we can't take it all ourselves mm-hmm. so we actually work with our you know competitors to go out there and really pick the winners together and help to capitalize them i don't have a crystal ball but we feel that we can write history a little bit by doing this if there are two or three companies competing for capital working in the same vertical or sector, whatever. And rather than us finance one and our competitors finance the other and someone else the other, we put our heads together and say, why don't we pick one horse and finance that one and potentially write history by being the financial backers of the one that we three collectively are working with. So, um, I mean, before I came and met you, and for the last three weeks, I've been on phone calls with like, four or five of, you know, our competitor funds that we're quite friendly with. We're, we sit on a lot of the same cap tables and we're working through some issues right now with one specific portfolio company that we're invested in. I can't talk about it right now, sure. um, but it's become a very complementary relationship where, you know, some groups are better at some things than others are. And we've been able to kind of team up and do diligence um, together. So that's been quite nice actually to go out there and, and have, um, Other groups to kind of lean into our deals. As I said earlier, like we really like to lead and structure a lot of our deals. So we do see that a lot of groups kind of come in behind us and they'll rely on us for some of our due diligence or, you know, vice versa. We'll, we'll piggyback on a little bit of theirs, but, um, traditionally we're doing our entire process all in-house internally. And like, we'll, we'll share what we need to share with Mm -hmm. our competitors, but ultimately, uh, yeah, we like to work together with, with folks out there. And there's groups that we don't work with Um, Because they don't play well in the sandbox. (laughs) There's always those. Yeah. And I won't mention who those are, but it's just a fact. But
0: it must be be nice to essentially share the workload. Right. And also, also you're, you're essentially allocating different, different um, resources as well. And that you're not essentially on your own uh, when you uh, conduct due diligence. And, and, um, and as you're trying to find out more information about these different targets,
1: You, you know, I wouldn't say that the workload changes dramatically. Like we, you know, we all, we pride ourselves in our due diligence process. Okay. And you know, I, I'll invite you to our data room. You can see it like the length of an investment memo doesn't matter, right? It's the quality of the due diligence, but just to give you an idea, every deal we do probably has somewhere between an 80 and 120 page write-up of months of work and due diligence to go into it. So it's not like we're, first of all, we're not sharing that with our competitors. Like we'll maybe share like a little bit of it to help, catch them up, especially on a deal that we're leading, but we're typically not sending out a memo like that. That's really our bread and butter. And that's what we offer to our LPs is that we do very extensive diligence. I'll be the first to say it. You know, We didn't reinvent the wheel here. We took the same processes that we learned at big firms like Partners Group or Goldman Sachs, and we're now instituting those processes in the cannabis space, which I don't think a lot of folks are doing. What What I do like is it gives us one more confidence that we're actually gonna raise a round, right? If it's a $10 million round and we're only putting 3 million bucks up, we need the 7 million so that this company can execute on their business strategy. So we like having these other firms that can get excited about opportunities alongside us or us alongside them to go out there and ensure that we're gonna raise enough capital to give this company the ample runway and growth equity that they need or growth capital that they need to really execute on their business plan. And then, you know, just like the what i guess what's the word um it certainly makes you feel all nice and fuzzy inside knowing that like we're kind of in this together right if things go well we can high five but also misery loves company if things don't go well at least you know we've got someone to uh to talk about hey what went wrong here or how could we make it better and you know the truth is it's investing right you like at the end of the day you do what you can to analyze The risk, the downside. It takes us 10 minutes to understand the upside of any investment opportunity. It takes us three months to underwrite the downside. But it's still a finger in the air. You still have to make sure, you know, the management team has to execute, et cetera. Anything can make a business go wrong or an investment go sour. And while we're confident in our ability at Key to discuss, you know, potential paths forward or remedies for these businesses, having more minds at the table definitely helps that kind of creative you know, energy flow better. So I'd say that going into a deal, yeah, it feels all nice and warm and fuzzy to have someone with you, but where it's been really nice is just having more advisors at the table in the event that, yeah. you know, something's going wrong and, and more, you know, just different perspectives is, is really nice.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say that it sounds like the value of the collaboration are the different lenses that you bring to the table. And maybe you're identifying certain risks that other exactly. people aren't and vice versa. Um, are you guys looking at any inter- international deals beyond US?
1: You know, we get the question all the time. And I think that there's just enough opportunity in our own sandbox, in our own backyard um
0: i noticed a couple of your companies are uh colorado based so yeah we we,
1: you know we we like we like you know being close to the management teams Mm -hmm. um i like to be able to just jump on a quick flight and be there if i need to be um look i you know i'm not german right there's a huge opportunity in germany right now or, or thailand or wherever it is right um takes you 12 hours, 15 hours to get to any mm-hmm. of these destinations. I don't speak the native language. I don't really have the boots on the ground feeling. So while I compliment some of our competitor funds for going out there and making some of these international investments, I, I also ask myself, like, do we have the competence to do it ourselves? And I don't think that we do. I think that we are much better served by working with companies in our own backyard where we're that much closer to the management teams. We, we get the culture here, et cetera. We've got the boots on the ground. We, we hear the chatter. Like m- maybe less than 1% of the time, do I ever hear any of my portfolio companies talk about anything international, right? Mm-hmm. But I always hear them talk about my other portfolio companies or other opportunities that potentially we're looking at. So we, we just don't have that visibility into international where I think that we could be dangerous. Um, that's not to say that there's not an opportunity with international investing. I certainly think there is, um, we just think that we're much better suited doing it here. If I were to invest in international cannabis, I'd probably go find a manager across the pond.
0: Got it. No, obviously uh, potential for the future, right? But just not right now.
1: It may, maybe yeah. one of the guys wants to move to London or, or yeah. Munich or something one day, but probably yeah. won't be me.
0: <laughs> Got it. Um, I mean, speaking of the future, what's, what's the future, What does the future hold for key investment partners?
1: So we are uh, we're actually in the process right now of, of holding the first closing of our second fund. Um, so the future for this vehicle is going to be a similar approach to fund one, but a little bit more opportunistic. There's a lot of distress out there today. Um, really what our goal outside of the ancillary side on the plant side is to partner with these operators that we have viewed as, call it, you know, like the blue chip operators. Mm-hmm you know, help them identify assets in their backyard that are distressed and start to consolidate the industry. Years ago, as I mentioned, cannabis companies were raising money at crazy valuations. They could turn left or right and find capital. And a lot of these entrepreneurs, um, I don't think ever thought that the faucet would stop and it has and operating expenses, um, were But they've out- had to
0: liquidate, um, assets and where they exactly. even get, ca- um, ca- enough cash to operate. Right. Exactly.
1: So, So they, you know, two or three years ago, they had all this money and they were spending money on all these crazy ideas and Mm -hmm. buying pretty cool assets and putting them on their balance sheet. But fast forward to today, they've ran out of cash. They don't have any runway. There's some cool assets on the balance sheet. We can go pick them up for maybe not pennies on the dollar, but the proverbial pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking to do is let's partner with the best operators, help identify these distressed opportunities, gobble them up and really, you know, create a dominant footprint. So that's, that's like the immediate future right now. The far future of key itself, I think, is um look, we uh we come from traditional investing background. I think that cannabis is always gonna be a big part of what key does. Um, but our skill set, which is a proven process of due diligence, etc., um, I think can span across any type of asset class. So as I've you know, started off with the podcast saying we were thinking about what to do. And we knew we couldn't compete with our bosses, you know, all the Mm -hmm. gray hair to do something traditional at that time. So that's why we started thinking about emerging markets. Well, now we've got a track record. Now we've raised money. Now my hair is starting to turn gray although You probably can't see it (laughs) on the camera. So I think that, uh, cannabis will always be be a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, but we will likely start to branch out into other asset classes as well. I mean, Ultimately, I think that we're opportunistic investors, mm-hmm. and we see opportunity all over the place. I think that the cannabis opportunity is massive. Um, I think the major catalyst is for cannabis is going to be some type of reform, whether it's rescheduling, descheduling, or safe banking. That's all going to be very positive for the industry in one way or another. Um, and beyond that, it's going to be an industry that continues to mature, right? Like you're gonna have debt capital markets that are way more mature, 280E is gonna go away, mm-hmm. companies are gonna start generating real free cash flow. Well, what does that mean? That means I can go back to a traditional LBO model. If I see real free cash flow, all of a sudden I know how much I can lever up a business and if there's real debt capital markets, well then all of a sudden the era of cannabis LBOs will probably be possible. That doesn't exist today. Today it's growth equity investing mm-hmm. and you know, say a prayer, right? And see, see yeah. what happens. Tomorrow, I think all that changes when 280E, et cetera, goes away. So the name of the game today is duration. How do you manage that risk? How do you have enough capital on the balance sheet to manage that runway? Um, and work towards profitability today, because if you can survive until one of these catalyst moments, then I think that um, there's going to be a lot of survivorship bias, frankly, in the industry. And then, like I said, traditional investing is, is yeah. probably... Down the road for us
0: too. No, I agree. I think uh, the cannabis uh, industry still has a lot of room for growth. And it has a lot of room for um, evolving, right? As you said, if it gets descheduled or re- or or, comp- uh, or scheduled in another class, that's going to affect different industries and how banking is done, and not to mention potential bankruptcy options that's not available today, yeah. right? So um, there, there's a lot of change. Now, have you ha- has uh, key investment partners looked at other alternative substance? industries such as psilocybin or Kratom or anything like that?
1: So, you know, I think folks naturally think because we're a cannabis fund that we, that's a very easy um, path for us to go down. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some truth to that. Definitely. Um, I have not personally gone too deep in the weeds. um, (laughs) No pun intended. No pun intended down that path. But um, we do see a lot of deal flow. Yeah. And we're starting to get smart on it. And in particular, my co-founder, Jordan Euclis. Um, I would say he's getting quite deep on the space. So if we are going to develop a thesis there, it will be from Jordan's, I guess, personal passions. Um, I have nothing against it, but it is very different than investing in cannabis. Cannabis is kind of taking this really wonky route towards legalization. Is it medical? Is it recreational? Is it a pharmaceutical product? Whereas um, these alternative medicines like psilocybin, et cetera, um, they're really going down more what it seems to be the traditional pharma route. Mm -hmm. Um, Investing in traditional pharma and biotech is far different than investing in a cannabis tech firm or a retail cannabis strategy or CPG strategy. Clinical trials are very expensive if you're going to take a company down that Mm -hmm. path. Um, I don't think there's a single cannabis fund today that has the right amount of capital or expertise to cat, you know, to go down the biological path of clinical trial trials, et cetera, um, for that industry. So it, it's, it is quite different, but there are ways to capture that industry as well. I mean, there's, um, what are these called? Like not, not methadone clinics, but there's, um, what are the clinics?
0: It's the addiction clinics, the addiction clinics,
1: yeah. et cetera. Um, ketamine clinics, et, yeah. et cetera. Like, all that, all that's interesting to us. So, if we were to go down that path, which frankly we actually have the flexibility in our mandate mm-hmm. to do it, um, it would probably be more something okay. like that, like a services yep. type business.
0: That's one thing I've noticed is that because I'm in the space that I am, I'm in, and I came from. I actually got into. I think we talked about this briefly when we were on the phone call back in mid mid July. Um, I came into the space about ten years ago from the healthcare side.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, historically, I've always been a healthcare attorney. Um, but in the last, I would say three years, you're looking. Uh, I've been getting a lot more calls about the ketamine clinics, yeah. um, about psilocybin and stuff like that. Um, I think ketamine is an interesting market, right? Because um, it, it was it was never a Schedule One drug, but it was. Um, well, actually, I take that back. I think it, at one point it was Schedule One, and then uh, the Vietnam. There was a history with Vietnam War. It's all interesting how these different alternative substances have their own distinct history kind of like cannabis there was it has a very robust and very colorful history of how cannabis evolved over time ever since the shakespearean era and throughout the 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 u.s and being one time on the u.s pharmacopoeia and it it, it having some of the challenges it's had um but i think that i think that's a growing in my opinion that's a growing market with the alternative medicines alternative substances um do you have any last words on how you see forecasting the the, the future of this uh, of of the entire cannabis industry? Yeah, just one just one one bold statement.
1: I would say that you're better off today investing in what you perceive to be a static environment, and just be prepared to be surprised by the upside one day. But don't bet on the upside happening, and the upside being regulation coming through, rescheduling, safe banking, etc. cetera, you're probably much better serviced as an investor investing behind a company that is profitable and successful in this difficult environment. And when rescheduling happens or when banking happens, you'll be pleasantly surprised. But if you bet on a business today, betting that safe banking is happening tomorrow and it's not a business that has the proper capitalization or is profitable, et cetera. Um, I think you might find yourself in a tough, tough environment.
0: Wise words. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, Tibby, I really appreciate you making the time to come out to, uh, to record the Sative segment. I know you, it's a, it's a long track from Denver. Um, I know you're spending some time here in Texas, yep. so, um, you know, best of luck with the capital raising.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. It was a ton of fun being here and really appreciate you, uh, having me on the show here today.
0: Great. Thanks a lot.